Well, this week we're going to go ahead and continue on with our series into the book of 1 Corinthians. This is part three, and we're going to start with uh, start digging into chapter two this morning. And if you guys remember last week, we saw Paul begin to address the divisions that were occurring in the church. So Paul is up in Ephesus. He's planting a church up there. He's doing his work up there. And he gets a letter from closed people that says, hey, um, since you left seven years ago or so, there's been some stuff that's going down. Things are getting a little bit crazy. There's some infighting. There's some bickering. Some people are thinking that they're right. Some people are thinking that they're right. Some people are thinking that because we're with so-and-so that, that uh, we should have greater influence. And other people are, no, I'm, I'm with so-and-so, so we should have greater influence. And, and basically, they're getting their heads wrapped around men instead of the Word of God. And, and, and things are, are becoming a mess. And they're starting to have that age-old argument about who is right. I, I read this, and I'll, I can't stop but thinking about it. It's what the church looks like in many ways today with the different denominations and, and, and different preachers and teachers. And we're, you know, everyone thinks that they're right. And instead of working together, we, we try to separate based on this thing. And just like it was hurting the Corinthian church, it does nothing but hurt the, the church, the global church today as well. And I'm reminded that as Christians that we should be pressing together towards unity and not division based on minor little things that make no difference. If they don't believe in the, the Jesus of the Bible, that's the, the, my one exception. If they don't believe in the same, the same Jesus of the Bible that we believe in, that, that he is the only way to salvation, that he is God in the flesh, he was born of a virgin, he lived and then he died for us and then he rose again. On, you know, those are the, the, core, the core bits, the essential. But anything else, man, we can put that stuff behind us and, and let's work together to reach people that they might know Jesus. And then as we continue to read on, we begin to see Paul begin to deal with the message of the gospel. And he explained to them that, hey, I didn't come to you with, with haughty words and, and really eloquent speech. I just came to you with the wisdom of God. And it's not wisdom of man. It's the wisdom of God. And he said, you know, it's, it's different than you might have expected. This isn't me coming up with a great master plan. And there were some real problems with it because, because it was the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of man. The Jews had a problem with it because in their head, they thought that the Savior was going to be this mighty political and, and war general that was going to free them from the, the bondage and, and, and oppression of the Romans. And they, they thought that this is who the Messiah was going to be. And then the, the Greeks, they have a problem with the idea of the cross because to them it just doesn't make any sense. There's no wisdom in, in sending somebody to die so that we could all, I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to process. It doesn't make any sense. It sounds like a fairy tale. And it's because it's not the wisdom of man. It's the wisdom of God. And that's the thing about God's wisdom is it doesn't click with us all the time. Oftentimes, it's in direct contradiction to what we think would be the right way to do things, what we would think would be the correct ways. It just it doesn't mesh. It doesn't fit, except in hindsight. And actually, we're going to talk a little bit about today why all of a sudden, and in hindsight, when we look back, all of a sudden, some of the stuff that we used to think was crazy, all of a sudden kind of starts to make sense. You'll notice that. Have you ever, did you, any of you guys ever read any parts of the Bible before you got saved? Did it didn't make any sense to you? I remember reading the Bible before I got saved, and I'm like, it's just a bunch of gibberish. It doesn't make any sense. And then I got saved. And then as I read, all of a sudden things became clear that were, that were confusion before. And we'll talk about why that is today. 
because Paul's going to continue speaking on the wisdom of the gospel today as we dive into the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, and he's going to talk about what it really is, the revelation of what it really is versus seeing it from an outside perspective, because there's actually, that's two different things. We can, we can look at the scriptures from an outside intellectual perspective, and we can pick things out of it, but there's a difference when you get a real revelation of what God's trying to, when you get to, to really have the, the truth of God just expounded in your heart and you see what's actually going on when the Holy Spirit is testifying with your spirit about it, there's a difference between revelation and an intellectual knowledge. An intellectual knowledge will let you repeat it to somebody else, but a revelation will let it become manifest in your life. Because an intellectual knowledge isn't going to get that. Intellectually, we can go, you know what, uh, Jesus Christ died for my sins and I'm, I'm free from all these things that I have a control over, these, these addictions or whatever it is. Intellectually, we can think that, but have no change in our life. But once we have a revelation of that, we begin to see it manifest in our life. Because God is working, not just something memorized. on. Amen? So in 1 Corinthians 2, 1, it says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So as Paul's going into this one, he begins to appeal to the Corinthians' own conversion. They just got saved. And he begins to say, you know, when I came to you, when I came proclaiming the gospel to you, I didn't come talking all fancy and all kinds of crazy word techniques and all the stuff trying to convince you of what's going on. He says it was, it, was the, it was the power of the cross, not the power of his preaching. It wasn't humanly powerful rhetoric which was getting it done. It was, it was the, the power of the cross, the simplicity of the cross that it actually saved. He said, I didn't come to you with fancy speech. and, and pers- pers- I, didn't, you know, I didn't attend a, a three-week three course on how you can persuade people effectively before I came out of here. This was just the power of God. And he continued to point out what the gospel really was, and that was it's the, the power to save. Just like we read last week in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I didn't come here in fancy speech trying to, to convince you of these things. I didn't have my bar charts and explain why this is better than every other religion around. I was just preaching you the power of the cross. And when God touched you, you began to realize it was the power to save and not just a, a fancy plan of man. And it wasn't some well-contrived story or some, some speech designed to, to, to trick or deceive. Many times, that's what, when people are trying to convince you of something, they'll use any means necessary to convince you. To, to, it's, it's basically a sales pitch. You guys, anybody you guys ever had those people come around um, that, that check your water because they're trying to sell you a water socket. I mean, I've had some of those people that I've had to just tell leave because I've caught them in, in flat out. I had one. <laughs> she came up to me and she's trying to convince me to buy this water softener so our water's better because in Miranda, if you don't know, your water's kind of awful. Um, so she comes up and, she, and, she, and I, you know, she finds out that I'm a pastor and, and, and she goes, uh, goes, oh yeah, doesn't the scripture say something about the water of life? And I'm like, Yes, but that has, it has nothing to do with, with water. But they'll use anything to, to, to try to convince you. It's any kind of, there's all these tricks. 
But Paul hadn't come to start a, a religious fan club. He, didn't, he wasn't trying to, to start something that would lift him up. He had come to glorify God and the, to, the, to these people in Corinth. And the philosophers and teachers of that time, they, they depended on their wisdom and eloquence to, to get followers to come behind them. As a matter of fact, that's no different than today. You see really amazing speakers, but it's because they're charismatic, because they know how to speak, they know how to, to rile up a crowd, they know how to get people behind them, and they draw a following based on, on how, good they're, how, how well they're able to present themselves. And if you think about the time, this time back then, particularly the city of Corinth, it's full of people like this. This is an age where Greek philosophy was all the rage. I mean, people were, were, were putting forth philosophical ideas in this, and particularly in the Greek culture, that's how you elevated yourself, was by being a philosopher and a great speaker and able to, to uh, rally people behind you like that. And even some of the most renowned speakers of that day, they would go and they would talk themselves down before they began. They began to, to talk about how, you know, they're not good speakers and they couldn't do this and they couldn't do that. And then they would begin speaking and it would just blow everybody away. You know, that was part of their technique was to make people think that they weren't very good. So when they spoke, it sounded even better. It was a, it was, it's a common technique. It's actually taught today <laughs> to be used. It's, it's a common speaking technique. And I remember when I was in sales, uh, when, I, when I had to deliver bad news, if I was going to uh, sell somebody something that was super expensive, I always doubled or tripled the price when I told them the first time. So when I told them the real price, it didn't seem half bad to the first price I gave them. It's, it's a way of speaking. It's a way of persuading. It's common stuff. It was com- it's common to use those kind of techniques. But Paul was saying, I didn't come here doing that kind of stuff. I'm not a snake oil salesman. I'm here telling you about the love and power of God. Paul didn't depend on his eloquent speech or his clever argument. He just depended on the power of the Holy Spirit as he declared God's word and God's promise. As I was studying this, I, I got to read a story, and there was, there was basically a, a certain church that had a huge stained glass depiction of Christ on the wall behind them. And one time, they had a, a guest preacher come in. And he was much shorter than the original pastor, and he's preaching. And the, a little girl turns to her mom and says, what happened to the other guy that always stands in the way of Jesus? And that's kind of a picture of what actually can happen. And even in Christian societies, in our circles today, we want to make sure that, and like Paul, that he's like, I didn't come here to puff myself up to make myself good. I want you to see Jesus. We don't ever want to minister and share in such a way that, that all the people can see is us and our skills and our abilities. They, they miss the point because I guarantee you if they put their faith in you, it's not going to get them anywhere. And if they put their faith in me, they'll be even worse off. But it's, it's not our speaking. and our It's, it's the power of See, Paul, like ourselves, was an ambassador, not a Christian salesman. Amen? Paul cross, Jesus Christ, the center of all of his message. And that's what, whether we're, we're preaching on a Sunday morning or in front of the kids, or, or you're just teaching your children at home, 
Jesus sinner, amen? In 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Did you know this is how we should see all of our brothers and sisters in Christ? We should see nothing else in one another except for Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how much different all of our relationships would be if that's how we saw one another? When we looked at each other, that we didn't see our failures or our missteps or how somebody has hurt, you know, how they've hurt me in the past or how I've hurt them or all of these different things. If we just saw them as God and just love them and we look at them and we don't see their failures, but like God, when He looks at us, He just sees Jesus. He just sees perfection. He just sees holiness. He just sees righteousness. When people fell, if we didn't see failure, but instead we just saw opportunity for victory. Just think about that. That will change your perspective on everything. When you see people falling, don't focus on their failure, but focus on the opportunity for victory. Reminding them what Christ has accomplished in them. Instead of pointing fingers and chastising, we are encouraging them and reminding them who they are in Christ. Reminding them that Hey, even though you just fell down, you actually already have victory in this area. Get back up. Let's keep going. Did you know that people are much more likely to risk their life for a stranger than for somebody that they know and don't like? It's true. You, you could think about it. There could be a stranger that you've never met that was a mass murderer. And just the awfulest person, if you didn't know them, you're much more likely to risk your life for them than somebody you know and didn't. And you already know bad stuff. It's because we look at people based on their actions and who they are and what, they, what they've done and what they've accomplished that taints our vision. I mean, what if we just look at people as God? Even people that aren't Christian. God sent His Son to die for them. God considered them valuable enough to send His Son that they could be made free that they could be redeemed, that they could be forgiven. What if we saw people like that? I mean, at the very least, we treat strangers better than our family oftentimes. You ever notice that? I mean, a stranger comes along and we go out of our way to be polite and helpful, but man, if it's our brother and sister, we're kicking doors down and screaming. Or if it's your spouse, you take a lot more liberties with your spouse than anybody else. And part of it's because you know that they're going to love you either way. It's really a terrible reason to do those. We should know that they're going to love us unconditionally. So, but we need to evaluate how we, like Paul did, evaluate how we look and decide: Are we going to judge them and value them based on their actions or based on how God? And I find it interesting that he doesn't say. He says, "I decided to know nothing." among you except Jesus Christ. He says, I decided. That means that we have to make a conscious decision. We have to decide that's how we're going to And if we would just get out of the way and stop evaluating people on their highs and lows and evaluating them, how Jesus saw them. Think about how different this world would be. Think about how different church would be. It's not, a, it's not a huge issue here, but there's, there's a lot of churches and, and 
I'm sure there's times even in this church where we get frustrated with people. That's what happens when you're in a family. You get frustrated with people. You get upset. That's what happens. We rub on each other. I mean, it was, it was tough there for the last few months when we were all here almost every day of the week for the Christmas stuff. Some of you guys probably wanted to murder me. But we're a family, and we get through it. We press on. See, when you laugh after everybody else, that's you basically saying, yep. <laughs> I agree. I resemble that remark. <laughs> yeah. We're going to be having counseling after church. <laughs> Hallelujah. But let's, if we resolve to see God, not see their load, failure, and the stuff that bugs them. If we, get, if we get ourselves out of the way and just follow Jesus' commandment to love one another, that'll happen. The truth is, is seeing people how God sees them is the key to a successful Christian walk, to successfully living your life. It'll change everything when you, you, when you look at the people in your, in your family, your church family, other believers, and you see them as someone that has been loved and paid for by God. And that's all you see, even in their failures, you see their victory and you encourage them. Or even people that aren't saved, you see them as people that, that Jesus is willing to die. And instead of us getting all bent out of shape and judging people for the things that they're doing, we just remember that, that we're supposed to love them and encourage them and bring them in. And it doesn't mean we have to agree with all the stupid stuff that they're doing. But it, it doesn't mean we, we don't have to, to ostracize and castize them and push them away. We should be drawing them in that we can share with them, that we can encourage them, and that they might partake in the same treasure and divine change we have. But I can tell you what, if we, if we don't look at them that way, and just, I mean, push them away and tell them how they're going to hell and, and, and chastising them and, and pretty much just being awful people, we're not going to be able to bring, draw them. Instead, we're just going to push them away. Instead of telling them that, that they're loved and we love them, we would just see people how, how God did I This world would be such a much better First 1 Corinthians 2, 3-4, he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. This is Paul once again talking about, I, I came to Corinth, not as a powerful spirit, you know, not as a, I didn't have an entourage. I didn't have, you know, I didn't, I didn't just buy my own personal jet. And I'm not on all the tabloids, and I'm not super, I just, I didn't come here on all these things. But rather, I came in my week, in my timidity, because I was, I was in fear and much trembling. The, the indication there that he probably, not only was he, he not claiming to be a great speaker, but he, he made, been just a, a, a poor speaker. He may have been actually nervous. He may have actually had trouble addressing. There's some indication that he may have, have actually struggled in speaking. But his attitude was not fearful. But it was utterly dependent upon God for the important task of bringing the gospel to these people in the city of Corinth. The, the important task of bringing the gospel to these people in an idolatrous and wicked and immoral city. 
And the truth is, this is pretty common among the scriptures that people are, are really are ill-equipped to handle the task that God has put before them. Moses had a speech problem, but he was supposed to lead the nation. David was small and, and really unkingly. I mean, when, when they were out there, when, when the, the prophet came up and said, I'm going to pick the next king, I mean, everybody, they, they left him out in the field because they figured he was so unworthy of being a king, they didn't even bother bringing him in, bringing him in. Joseph just ran his mouth when he shouldn't. Got him thrown into a pit and then sold to slavery. But God used these men. Oh, and, and then, uh, oh, who was the one that was... Uh, Either way, it's scripture. So he was in the, the threshing field, and God came from and said, uh, uh, He was. No, that he was Gideon. Yes, I knew it was sort of the G. I couldn't remember it. Gideon. He was the, the smallest person in the smallest tribe, and he had, he had nothing going for him. And God said, Hey, mighty man of God. It's common in the scriptures for people that are ill equipped for the task that God is sending them out for to not only go out and, and be assigned this task, but they accomplish it in great, mighty ways. Because the truth is, it's not us that accomplish for God. It's God that accomplishes things through us. And it's oftentimes in our greatest weakness. And I think God does that because, you know, when people look at you, they're like, well, it sure as heck wasn't him that did it. God must have moved. There's no one. We can't claim that it was us that did it. Because that's not an area that we have those skills and ability. God moved through us instead. Paul even said that I'm a content. Second Corinthians twelve ten he says, For the sake of Christ, and I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And what does he go on to say? For when I am weak, then I am strong. And well, that doesn't make any sense. How can you be weak and strong at same time. But it's because when Paul was weak, he relied on the Lord even more. And because of that, as a result of that, he was he was strong in the Lord, not in himself. He recognized that in areas of weakness, God made him strong. And he could accomplish anything in those things. And this should be a great encouragement to all of us who feel like, you know, how many of you guys don't feel like you know the Bible well enough to share with people? Have you ever felt that way? Yeah, I remember when I was going to be a pastor, I'm like, I just feel like I need to, to learn a little bit more, then I'll be ready. And finally, my pastor's like, you're never going to be ready. Just get on. Get over it. Move on. We, I think we all feel that way. I, I just don't know enough to share. I'm not, I'm not uh, wise enough. I'm not courageous enough. I'm not. All these things, God can work powerfully. This would be an encouragement. In these areas of your weakness, God can work miracles. And you'll be amazed that when you do finally step out and trust God and speak to somebody, how you're like, I can't remember any, all of a sudden scriptures will start coming to your head. And you begin to share and impact and touch lives. But we think we're not smart enough or persuasive enough or that we don't know enough. But the truth is, God in those weaknesses will make you strong and effective. I'm living proof of that. It's serious. If you guys would have known me before today. See, most of you guys just see me as Pastor Wayne. That's how you've always known me. That's, that's who I am. But talk to my mom, talk to my sister, and learn about who I used to be. 
many of you guys have, have, have came to me and, and, and have expressed how, how this is a loving church and how we're, we're leading that and, and people care about one another. You talk to my mom and my sister, and in retrospect, if I look back honestly, I was one of the most selfish people you had ever met. And I didn't care about people. I cared about myself. One of my greatest weaknesses. But God has been able to take that weakness and make it a strength in this church. And you guys know that you're loved. And it's spreading out as we love one another and we treat each other as a family. And it's, but, man, if you look at my skill set and my character, this is not the place any of you would have expected to see me if you knew me when I was a teenager in college. But it's because God can do incredible things when people would trust Him, even in their weakness. And then if God has gifted you in a certain area, He can use that as well. Or use you in your weaknesses, and He has given you certain gifts and ability. You know, there's certain areas that have been weak of mind that God's been able to to just turn around and make strong in and, and be a blessing to the church. And then there are certain area, other certain areas where God has always just gifted me and gifted me with technology and stuff like that. And he's able to use that for his kingdom as well. Technological wise, we're probably a lot farther ahead than other churches our size, but it's because God has just built that in me as well. And he takes my strengths and he makes some strengths to the kingdom of heaven. And he takes my weaknesses, and he makes some strengths to the kingdom of heaven. And in him, I can accomplish everything. But I'm also acutely aware that when I try to do things outside of him, that, that even with all my gifts and abilities, they're worth nothing without him. Oh, you know what, I'm not going to... I came to you. I can't talk. I can't talk well. My message was not in the, the wisdom of my words and how, how good they were in the plan and the explanation, but it was in the demonstration of the spirit and power of God. And the reason why Paul was so effective was not in his own ability, but it's because the spirit of God was working. The Holy Spirit was testifying to other people's hearts. It's why before I minister and before I share I ask God to prepare people's hearts because it's not my words that are going to convince and do anything with anybody. Hopefully I can, I can, I can word things in such a way that it makes them easier for, for people to understand. But the truth is, is it's His word that makes a difference in your lives, not mine. It's also the reason why I use so much Scripture when I preach, because I'm acutely aware of it. I want His word to increase your faith. But the truth is, is that just like today, and particularly what Paul's talking about is the power of their conversion was not through him and his preaching, but it was the power of God working inside and the power of the Holy Spirit working inside. And in 1 Corinthians 2 5, he says that your faith might not rest with men, but in the power of God. Because Paul wanted them to trust God and not him. That was the important. Paul said Paul didn't want them to get wrapped up in who he was. Matter of fact, Paul didn't want them to get wrapped exactly what was happening, where they were they were rallying behind men instead of behind God. And had he depended on the human wisdom and presented the plan of salvation in a philosophical system, and actually many times we see Christianity presented just that. We we see Christianity presented as a system of rules. 
presented as a religion. Most of my life I lived in that kind of Christianity. And every day I would go to sleep and lay out my laundry list of sins saying, God, please forgive me for this. Please forgive me for that. And then I would wake up the next day. You know, I'd feel kind of okay when I finally went to sleep, but I'd wake up the next day and I would do the same things all over again. There was no freedom. There was no deliverance. It was just a system of, of guilt and guilt release, basically. I remember it got so bad once when I was in high school. I was smoking behind my parents' back, and they didn't know, but, but uh, I was trying to kind of live a Christian life. I went to church sometimes, and uh, I remember laying in bed going, I can't wait till I turn 18. At least I won't be breaking the law. That's one less sin that I'll be doing. Because I couldn't, I had no deliverance and no freedom. But I, I remember thinking that, like, how kind of crazy. That's, that's a philosophical system of religion when you lay out a list of rules and you're relying on yourself to accomplish these things. And Paul's like, I'm not, I didn't present that. Because I didn't want your faith to rest in men. I didn't want your faith to rest in an explanation or a philosophical system. I wanted it to be in God. So Paul declared the word of God, he declared the power of God and his converts put their faith in God instead of some well-thought-out speech. Because faith placed in any man or any system can't save anybody. Salvation requires divine intervention. It requires God moving because we can't save ourselves. We can't live good enough. We can't do enough of the right thing. God is required, and that requires faith. And this is why Paul delivered his message the way he did. He didn't want there to be any confusion. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-7, it says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed for the ages for our glory. When speaking to those who were non-believers, Paul didn't rely on his own brilliance to get the point across. And like I said, they, they, were, they were used to this. The Corinthian church were used to this uh, uh, debating and, and philosophical debate. This is what they were used to. That whether they were engaging in it themselves or they were just simply listening to it, it was, it was kind of the life they were used to. And as Paul had already noted, he didn't come to them with some great philosophy, but instead he came with a simple divine message that had the power to save. But in his disclaimer of his brilliance, in him saying that, that I came to you without you know, worldly wisdom and all this stuff, I came out with all this stuff, it, wasn't, it didn't mean that God puts a premium on ignorance. Even though the plan is simple, even though the plan of salvation is simple, and, and he came to them with a simple message in a simple delivery so they would be touched by the power of God, it didn't mean that God doesn't care about wisdom. God wants us to be wise. See, the thing is, is salvation was purchased by the Son, but it was planned by the Father. And those who talk about the simplicity of the gospel, anybody ever heard of the simplicity of the gospel? They're both right and they're wrong. Because the truth is, the message of the gospel is simple enough for even an illiterate pagan to understand and to grab hold of it. But it's also so profound the most brilliant theologian can't fathom that. When you begin to study and see what really happened 
inner workings. On the surface, to grab a hold of salvation, it's as simple as you were a sinner. The wages of sin is death. And there's no way to take care of that on your own. So God sent his son to pay the price for you. And if you'll just receive that as a free gift, you can be saved. You can be righteous. You can be holy. You can be forgiven. You can be right with God. That's simple. But if you spend time looking into it, the, the inner workings of it are really quite and, and there's none of us that really understand it fully. I imagine we're going to get to heaven one day and most of us are going to be like, huh, I really thought I had that part right. But as we study more, as we grow more, we move from being just began to see that we're so more than that we're forgiven and free and powerful in Him. We have strength that we didn't know we had. We don't we have a, a, a don't have fear that God is working in and among us, and it's we begin to learn so much more. There is a wisdom of God that challenges even the most keen intellect any of us could have. However, this this wisdom is 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 not ready for the masses. It's not ready to be given to everyone because there's there's difficulty understanding, especially when you try to understand it with the mind of the world instead of the mind of Christ. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age. It is for the mature believers who are growing in their understanding in the Word of God. And when he was among mature Christians, Paul did speak with words of wisdom, but it was the, the highest wisdom that came from God. And when he means by mature Christian, and, and when any of us refer to mature Christians, we're not talking about people that are highly trained have went to Bible school, or they've done all these things, or they have degrees. It's not, it's not about your training. But it's, it's really about those who have been walking with God for some time. Those who know His voice and aren't distracted by other things. Those who are not tossed to and fro. You begin to spend time with God and you can, you can pick out the chaff and the wheat when you hear other people speak. But it's because of the Holy Spirit's guidance that these believers could grasp the secret wisdom of God. And we begin to have God's wisdom revealed to us, the immeasurable power of the cross, how it's more than just salvation, but, but really a renewal. It's a brand new life. It's not just forgiveness. It's, it's so much. And this plan, was, this plan is kind of a secret thing because most people don't grasp it. Most people read the the scriptures, and they try to look at it from an intellectual viewpoint, and they just don't get it because unless the Holy Spirit is testifying with your spirit, you're just not going to understand. And un- attempting to understand this plan with human wisdom and through philosophical discussions will get you. But if you think about this, this, this should make sense as a believer because like I said when I started this, I remember reading the scriptures as when I was younger before I was well and truly saved, and most of it was gibberish to me. It didn't make any sense. But now, it's different. When I, even every time I read the Scripture, something new will jump out of me. I'll, I'll get something that I didn't have before as the Holy Spirit begins to reveal stuff to me that, that I had before. But before I got saved, I never got into that. None of it ever made any sense. But through God, the Holy Spirit will begin to reveal to you secret wisdom that you've never thought that you could understand. That's why I believe it was uh, uh, Paul who said, consider what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding. 
because the speaker isn't going to do it. We have to have a revelation of the Holy Spirit. That's why if you're struggling in an area, you're having trouble in an area, I recommend you just read scriptures that deal with that. If you're having trouble with healing, find every scripture on healing and put it on your walls. Put it on, on, on your, your mirror, your bathroom mirror. Put it in your, you know, when you flip your visor down in your car. See, Because the more you see his word, the more your faith is going to increase in that area. And the Holy Spirit will begin to speak to you and you begin to have a revelation of the truth. And when you grab a hold of it, your life Never, ever the same. First Corinthians 2.8, it says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They were basically going through the same thing I was just talking about. They didn't have a revelation from God of who Jesus was, so they just saw him from an outside perspective, and their first reaction was to crucify him, to kill him, because he didn't fit in with any of their ideals, and he was just... A nuisance. All they saw was a nuisance. But if these leaders that would have really truly would have crucified him, they would have glorified and honored him in this when he was living on this earth as well. But their misunderstanding of who he was caused him to do incredibly awful things. So much so that Jesus had to say, "Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do." Because they were ignorant. This is why the book of Hebrews refers to, to crucifying Jesus afresh. In Hebrews 6, 4-6, through 6, it says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up. Now I want you to know if you're reading this and you've ever been confused, we can't send Jesus to the cross again. It happened once. It's once it was done once. His sacrifice is once and for all time. We can't send Jesus to the cross. But what he's talking about here is having the same attitude as these religious rulers as well. When you've tasted the goodness of God and you walk away, you're basically taking the same attitude there, saying, nope, he's not who he says he is. And when you take that kind of attitude, the ultimate outcome of that attitude when Jesus walked this earth was him being put to the cross again. It doesn't mean they're sending Jesus back to the cross, but that attitude is the attitude that sent Jesus to the cross, that thought process, when you consider him to be unworthy, to be not who he says that he was. They're essentially rejecting their own salvation, which is what they were doing. These rulers, I mean, Jesus came, them. He was there for them. Yet they rejected his free gift. And as long as people in this world maintain the same attitude, whether they've been saved before and fallen away, or they've never been saved, as long as they maintain that same attitude, that Jesus isn't who he says he is, not worth the paper that he's written about on, then that's the ultimate result. That attitude is Jesus to the cross. The funny thing is, this is kind of at, at the, the heart of Paul's irony. The very thing the ones were trying to kill, they were actually carrying out the will of God. What the enemy meant for harm, the enemy thought he was like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nip this in the bud. I know who, I mean, the, the devil knew who Jesus was. The demons knew who Jesus was. They're like, hey, it's not our time yet. What do you hear? I mean, they know who Jesus was. 
But he didn't know that the devil doesn't know everything. He didn't know the plan of God. He thought he was getting ahead of the game. He's like, I'm going to set stuff up. We're going to kill Jesus. We're just going to be done with this right from the beginning. But the very thing that the devil meant for harm, God the very thing that the devil thought was destroying the plans of God actually was essential to the plan of God for our salvation. They thought they were getting rid of a nuisance. But they were really crucifying the Lord of glory. And as a result, he rose again. And we have newness of life. But the problem was misunderstood by and killed by those whom the world considered wise and godly. The wisdom of God is not the same of the wisdom of man. And if we rely on people that the world thinks is wise today, instead of trusting the word of God, we're going to go down a path that we don't want to But as is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, Spirit searching everything, even the depths of God. Paul's point here is he begins to point out that humans can't begin to comprehend what God has prepared for those who love Him. We can't even wrap our heads around it even if we try. Even with the little bit that we do grasp now is nothing compared to the real, the real revelation of what God has for, for us. And the future blessings the believers will enjoy an eternity are beyond our even human understanding. But nevertheless, we believe and trust in God because He says they're true. And believers have received the Holy Spirit and finally we can understand from Scripture the wonderful future that God has prepared. We begin to see glimpses. We begin to, to, to understand. And Paul was beginning to explain to the Corinthian believers that they had become different. When you got saved, you became different from those around And the reason you're different is because you have the Holy Spirit in your lives. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And it's the Holy Spirit that reveals God to people. And God has been revealed to you in a way that He hasn't been revealed to those who don't believe. And we the Holy Spirit can actually get a glimpse of what God has planned for His people. And the reason that's so is because only God's Spirit is the heart of God. Spirit searches everything. God. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, For who knows, he's continuing that thought, for who knows a person's thought except the spirit of the person. And so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The reality is that I don't know what you, you don't know what I'm thinking. We can make some educated guesses based on past uh, past action. We can we can look at people's character. We we can make some educated guesses about what people might be thinking in a situation. But the truth is, we can't read each other's mind. And to be honest, it's probably a good thing. But the only person that really knows the thoughts of a person is that person. We know what we're thinking. And we'd be appalled, I think, if other people knew what we were thinking time to time. And that's what Paul's saying here is, is look, this is common sense. The only person that knows a per that truly knows a person is that own per is that own person. 
They're the only one that knows their thoughts. And this isn't any different for God because the Spirit of God knows God. The great thing is now the Spirit of God living inside of us, speaking to us. That means that we can know God. We can know His thoughts. We can know His plans for us, His desires for us. One of the things that always drives me crazy is when people talk about God works in mysterious ways. And I understand where they're coming from to a point, but the truth is God's not all that mysterious. He's laid out His plan in His Son and in the Holy Spirit quite plain in the Gospel to us. You know, people oftentimes will use that when somebody gets hurt or somebody gets sick, you know, as, as a way to justify in their own mind why God is letting somebody get cancer or something. Oh, God works in mysterious ways. No, God doesn't work in mysterious ways. That's not God that's letting that happen. It's the devil. You can look through the Scriptures and see where Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. That means that everything that Jesus did is what God wants and did, and whatever he didn't do is what God doesn't want. And you never once did Jesus say, you know, I would cure that leprosy from you, but really we need to teach you a lesson first. Never once do you see that happen. God doesn't work in all that mysterious ways. He's laid it, he's made it clear to us in word. And that's testified to us by his Holy Spirit living inside of us. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. His spirit inside of us crying and speaking to us. And the truth is, if we want to understand God, we kind of have to pick up a new language, and that's what the Holy Spirit is, is our interpreter, if you will. And what I mean by that is, is I work in IT. You guys know that in my regular job, I'm in IT. And to work in IT, I have a, a completely different language. If I talk to you about the stuff that I did at work, most of you, your eyes would just glass over, and, and, and I, I'm, I can't read your thoughts, but if I could, you'd be like, I wish you would just stop. Just go away. Phone, ring. Ring, phone, ring. I once had a friend who, who uh, I guess I misjudged his geekiness because we were talking one day, and he's, and, you know, he's like, oh, I love to geek out on this kind of stuff. So we used to get talking, and finally he looks at me, and he goes like, man, I like to geek out on stuff, but you just way out geek. I have no idea what you're talking about. And like when my wife is, is with me and my coworkers, and we're talking about stuff, she's got that look in her eyes like, I'm not even going to bother. I have no idea what they're talking about. And it's not much different like when I go out to lunch with her and one of her coworkers, and they start talking about their instruments and stuff that they do. I'm like, I have no clue. I don't speak that language. She doesn't speak but in order to interpret something, when someone's, you have to kind of know the language. And that's kind of, that's what happens to us when the Holy Spirit inside of us. We have to know the language of God. So when the Holy Spirit inside of us, we can finally interpret and understand the language of God. Amen? That's, that's why when you read stuff now in the Bible, it's different than when it used to. It's why you can get new revelation every day. It's why when I read right now, I'm like, I never saw that before. As the Holy Spirit begins to reveal stuff for me. It's not that I've not read the words before. I just never interpreted it correctly. I never had the right language. Amen? And uh, I'm, this is going to make Cliff jump up and down for joy, but last year, it actually went pretty long, and I apologize for that. But uh, yeah, the reality is, is that, that we have the Holy Spirit can finally understand when God speaks. We are not the same as we were before we received that amen. 
Amen. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.